Welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. I am Brian Wilson from Dallas, Texas. And I'm Jeff Black from Annapolis, Maryland. And I'm Lise Van Boxel from St. John's in Santa Fe. Today we're going to be talking about two things. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, Republic by Plato. That'll be the second half of our pod today. And we're going to do a little bit of a St. John's style seminar discussion about that work. But what we wanted to start off with today is how to approach readings like these. Readings that are maybe unfamiliar. Uh, maybe you're reading this kind of thing for the first time. Uh, maybe you've read it before, uh, but had difficulties. And so we just wanted to talk a little bit about how each of us kind of approaches readings like this that can be very off-putting or very complex um, for an initial reader or a reader that's not reading uh, and then able to discuss in seminar. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, how to approach a reading like this uh, if you're if you're on your own and, and kind of what Jeff and Lise, what you guys have done and how you approach readings like this. Well, I can jump in and say something about that. Um, so a reading like this, in this case, it's a platonic dialogue, and it's a long platonic dialogue. Um, and what I try to do with books like this is start by um, letting them tell me what they're about. Uh, and that usually means just giving uh, whatever part I'm reading a quick read and seeing what sorts of things uh, stick out in the reading, what catches my attention. And the great thing about these books is that they're written in a way that they can have a conversation with you. And what I mean by that is that when you go back to them and reread them, you can bring questions that arose from a prior reading to the books, and they'll often have some kind of answer. Uh, so while for the first reading I tend uh, to let the book itself tell me what its questions are and what I should be interested in, uh, if I have the chance to go back to it, I can often bring my own questions to it, and it will often have an answer for me. I absolutely agree that um, approaching the book is, is really means listening to the author. So I always think it's, it's as though you were going to dinner with somebody or you're on a date with somebody and you're really interested in seeing who that person is. And you, uh, particularly for a seminar where you do have a limited, a limited amount of time, you only have your, your dinner. Um, so you have that amount of time to figure out who this person is, what they are going to say to you about the topic, what the topic is. It's listening, um, trying not to impose yourself on that person. Um, with a work like Plato, too, it's written often, depending on the dialogue, but certainly the Republic as we have it, um, is written sort of like a play. So there's a, there's a literary qual a quality to it where you want to just get to know each of the characters, too, and dramatically why they're speaking when they are, uh, why they're interrupting, even sometimes body language, like somebody blushing what those things mean the same way you would if you were um, consciously watching you know, a Shakespeare play or watching a movie where you're trying to figure out what it, what it means. It has that quality to it. I like that idea of like, <laughs> treat it like you were on a date, <laughs> but it's really bad at me as I'm bad at that because I've spent most of my dates just telling somebody how awesome I am, which doesn't really work very well. <laughs> <laughs> and it's difficult to do when you're interacting with a platonic dialogue. Yeah. Uh, those, dates something go, I, those dates go badly where you're uh, always <laughs> But what are you really talking about? Why are you telling me? <laughs> they tend to end quickly, right? <laughs> um, I think that, you know, for me, like coming from the military uh, and kind of the military education, you know, that I went through, um, 
it's really built around trying to be trying to make things as simple as possible. You know, we have that saying, break it down Barney style. Um, and also be incredibly clear about what things mean, uh, which can kind of oversimplify things. And so when you've spent years doing that, and then you get to a platonic dialogue <laughs> where maybe nobody knows in the dialogue what each other means, um, and you don't have that, these are the three things you need to learn from book one. And then at the end, you get to the end. It's These are the three things you should have learned from book one. When you don't have that, it because it's almost muscle memory uh, after spending years in the military, then it's difficult to um, pull that off uh, and really kind of feel like you've gotten it. So, you know, my recommendation to folks when whenever they're approaching stuff like this is just, you know, don't 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 try too hard. <laughs> you know, try to enjoy it. I uh, if you, yeah, go ahead. So I wonder, Brian, if you could look at it this way. Um, you tell me since you have the background, but. It seems to me that the date analogy or the dinner with someone you think might be interesting, or let's just presuppose that they are, give them the benefit of the doubt, whether that analogy could be fleshed out in this way too. Wouldn't it be akin to being asked to say somebody in intelligence to be on the ground and just to gather information without any preconceptions as to what that's gonna look like or thinking, well, somebody else actually knows there are these three points I'm supposed to get. No, you're just there to see. Would it be more like that? I mean, thank you for that softball question. Um, and <laughs> because if our listeners don't know, I spent my career in the military doing um, human intelligence. So it was mainly about interrogating and uh, asking sources questions and that kind of stuff. And there's definitely um, a, a, a part of that. But I think the problem is because you can't interact, because you can't steer the conversation in a way that you want to steer it, that you're just you know kind of reading uh, that that interaction is it's similar but it's more difficult, right? Because you can't ask, and this is kind of the beauty of the seminar and why I think that the, the transition for me as somebody who collected intelligence to the seminar just really clicked well for me as opposed to like a lecture format because I could ask follow-up questions of a tutor or of a fellow student. When they said something that didn't make sense to me, I could say, wait, what do you mean there, right? And that's that's part of the beauty of the seminar and how understanding I think really flourishes in that uh, format because you can do that and also because if you are decent at listening then you can interact so much better as opposed to the lecture format where you know if you're reading something ahead of time basically somebody's talking at you and then if you get a lecture somebody's talking at you and the things that you're trying to figure out um, the things that are important to you don't really get addressed, right? Or fundamental flaws in the reading. If you see something like that, if you're like, this doesn't make any sense. It's harder to do that in a lecture where there's a level of authority that's telling you this is what it is. Um, so, I mean, I think it's, and this is, you know, I, I spent, cause I'm super lame. I spent a lot of my time when I was at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina, sitting around by myself and reading the Iliad. Uh, <laughs> and it's, you know, I still have that copy and I look at some of the notes that I made, you know, in 2003 uh, in the Iliad and I'm like, man, that was really dumb. Um, which I think would have, if I had the seminar outlet to kind of pitch my really dumb ideas, then my depth of understanding would have increased tremendously. And so that's kind of the pitch for, okay, go to St. John's if you're interested in not writing dumb marginalia. 
uh, or other reasons are probably good too. But, but, you know, I think that the, the idea of approaching the readings in, uh, like a way that's relaxed in a way that's, um, not, uh, don't put too much stress on yourself to understand them. Cause we all start off with like this. I have no idea what this guy's talking about. Um, even if you've read it again and again, it's just something kind of important for folks that might be listening to this folks that might be interested in kind of reading these kind of books. So maybe we could, we could milk the metaphor one more time, put it together this way um, from what you said. When you're reading the book, it might be more like if you're gathering intelligence, but you're not able to interact, you're eavesdropping or, observe, or just observing. But, but, but the task there is precisely that you can't interact. Once you go to the seminar, I do think uh, one of the beauties of the conversation is that the multiple minds um, – brings helps to bring the mind of the writer alive right so you can you can ask questions and other other minds in the room that have also listened to the text can try and fill in what they heard or saw about the details of it and i think that's very true it becomes alive um in a different kind of way than when you're just eavesdropping or observing yeah that seems right to me and maybe to just make one more analogy there's also a training aspect to this right you wouldn't expect when you start weight training for example to lift the heaviest weights immediately and to do so well so you got to be comfortable with starting with light things and uh, in the analogy what that means is you're going to gradually come to know what's important and to notice the important details so it's right to start off in an easygoing way and not to stress out too much and just keep your eyes open for what looks interesting to you. And as you do this more and more, I think you get a sense of what the really interesting things are and what uh, is worth noticing. Yeah, that actually, um, so when I, I wrote my you know, essay for St. John's, um, the thing that I pitched as why I wanted to go to St. John's was because of the Player King's speech in Hamlet. And it was, I have no idea what this guy's talking about, right? Because it's this very kind of grand eloquent, um, you know, very thespianish, uh, you know, version of the fall of Troy. And I had no idea who Priam was. I had no idea what was, and it's just dropped in the middle of this play. Like why? And and the, the assumption I was like, you know, for, you know, Shakespeare was as a reader, he just assumed you knew this stuff. And so my pitch to St. John's was, I had no idea what he was talking about. But my entry point was like that high school reading of Hamlet. And then, you know, seeing all these allusions and seeing the speech, I was like, okay, I have to understand this Greek stuff because that's, you know, a key part of this play. And so to understand this play, which I'm interested in and which kind of like sparks something in me, I have to go back to the Greeks. And so whatever your entry point is, it doesn't have to be Plato. If you read Plato and go, I am not interested in this at all, <laughs> then don't, don't force it, <laughs> you know, right. find something you like kind of in this canon. Uh, and then you'll, you'll get to something that you like and they will reference Plato and that will be your entry point. Right. And so it doesn't, you don't have to start with Plato and then work out from there. You can start wherever you want it for whatever really weird reason. You're like, man, this Hegel guy, I love this stuff, which nobody's ever said ever. But <laughs> if you start there and you dig it, you'll get to Plato sooner or later. And I think that's how the kind of canon that we work through all ties together so well. So whatever your entry point, whether it's Hegel or Euclid or Ptolemy or whatever you're reading will get you to everything else, but you want to kind of take your time with it and not force it. Yeah, one, one more thing that I, um, maybe is worth highlighting. Um, the nice thing about the canon, the great book canon, 
is you're dealing with great minds. I mean, really the, the, the best minds that we know of in human history, maybe not an exhaustive list, but certainly they're up there. And so when you're reading a text like that, and it looks like you see something that the, the author's contradicted himself or herself, the author's um, said something that looks ridiculous to you, give the author the benefit of the doubt and assume that if you saw it, they might have seen, the author might have seen it, and he might have done that on purpose, in which case you have a question as opposed to um, something you can just dismiss. I think it's probably a good entry point and segue to our reading for today. So uh, our reading for today is book one of The Republic. And uh, just like uh, at St. John's seminars, we're going to start with an opening question, but Jeff is going to give a little bit of an overview of the reading uh, and then ask his opening question, and we'll just kind of take it from there. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So uh, The Republic, like we said, is a platonic dialogue. It's uh, a dialogue by Plato that's long. Uh, it's a dialogue by Plato that has Socrates as one of its characters. And one of the interesting things is uh, this dialogue is a reported dialogue. In other words, Socrates does all the talking. He tells the story of a conversation he had the day before, really the night before, when he and a friend had gone down to the port part of Athens, the city called Piraeus, um, to see a festival for a new god that they're introducing uh, to Athens. And Athens is at war at this moment. It's part of the Peloponnesian War, so Athens is losing in this war to Sparta. Uh, there is some suggestion maybe that this new god is being introduced because there's some concern about the military situation. And so Socrates tells the story of this conversation he had as a result of his trip with his friend Glaucon down to the port city. Um, it turned out to be a conversation about justice, and it seems to have taken the entire night. Um, so what I wanted to ask about this, because we're only reading book one, is to ask about the beginning of this conversation, and in particular to ask about um, where war features in this beginning. Uh, it's easy to say about the Republic that it's really um, a book about something like domestic politics, because it's concerned with justice, it's concerned with how citizens in the city ought to treat one another. Um, but it seems to me that in the beginnings we see all kinds of hints about how not peace but war might be at stake in this conversation. And I thought if we could start by listing some of these hints and talking about them, that would be interesting. So you're, you're talking about, at the very beginning, the, the fact that it is a recounting of a story. We're not, it's not live. Um, and then what was interesting to me was when, right at the outset, and I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is part of what you're talking about, where in 327B, uh, his slave, uh, the slave ran up uh, and grabbed Socrates by his, by his cloak uh, and says, Polymarchus wants you to wait. Uh, he's coming up behind you. And then Socrates goes, I missed my reading, Socrates kind of goes, I, I don't really want to wait around. And they say, well, we've got more people than you. So you have to do what we say. So this is, it was an interesting intro and me being uh, for listeners that haven't read uh, or listened to this before, I'm, I'm the Dan Brown of the group and that I try to like do the, um, what's the movie that I reference all the time? <laughs> the, uh, the Da Vinci Code. So I'm That's always right. looking for like, these super weird things <laughs> where the Illuminati crops, crops up and play it out. <laughs> 
I'm just like, hmm, okay. So the slave grabs the cloak. What does that mean? And like, as opposed to like just reading the main parts of the book, I, I focus on that stuff. Um, so I'm glad we're bringing this up. You guys can help me understand it a little bit. No, I think that's, that's exactly what I meant about it would be as if you're in a movie. So the author here, like a director or, or a scriptwriter, has absolute freedom to begin the way he wants to. And this is the way he begins. So, so there's a mind there making a choice. And I think you're right that at the very beginning, what we see is a philosopher talking with uh, Glaucon, who's one of his students, also turns out to be the brother of, of Plato. Um, they're engaged in conversation and the political realm literally intrudes by forcibly. I mean, not, uh, you know, it's not extreme force, but he grabs his cloak and basically says, you know, you, you must do what we want because uh, we're mightier than you are. And that's an ongoing, ongoing challenge to the philosopher, philosopher, but that introduction announces that one of the themes is going to be um, the tension between philosophy and politics. And it would be one thing if this was just an isolated example, but later in book one, when Socrates and his friends have turned up at the house of a man named Cephalus, there's a similar scene. So there's this sophist named Thrasymachus who's at Cephalus's house, and Thrasymachus gives this long speech making some claim about justice, and then he wants to leave. And just like at the beginning of the dialogue, the people around him compel him to stay and say what he means. So this scene of uh, being arrested or being compelled happens more than once in this book. And this is one of these things that alerts us. We ought to start thinking about the role that force is playing, um, the role that war ultimately is playing uh, in the conversation about justice. And I think that the, the other theme in here as well is, you know, they mentioned the horse race, right? They mentioned this relay torch horse race right out of the gate. And so this potentially speaks to some kind of uh, desire in man uh, to compete and the desire in man to demonstrate they are better, right, in some tangible way, to demonstrate in a hierarchical sense where people stand. And then this also comes back to Thrasymachus in, in that, you know, he says that the, the tyrant is the one that can, you know, do injustice the best. And so it's, it's again, this kind of hierarchical thing that we're discussing. The other point, uh, Brian, you mentioned in your first comment, um, maybe we could elaborate on, that is um, after the Socrates is detained, there's this comment, well, what if we were to, we don't want to go, what if we were to persuade you? And the response from the detainers is, well, we won't listen. Right? So there's the other challenge the philosopher faces is that, um, if someone's not going to listen to you and have a dialogue with you or a conversation with you, then it does look like, uh, at least one of the questions is uh, wh whether you're only left with force. H how do you handle that circumstance? Um, now, in this case, Socrates does go um, to the house that Jeff mentioned, Cephalus's house. He's a wealthy old man. And as Jeff also mentioned, there's a sophist there. Maybe we should just quickly say what that is. That's somebody who engages in rhetoric, um, but uh, typically for the purpose of um, showing young, ambitious men, in this case youths, how they might be able to manipulate other people so as to gain political power, right? So we get one claim of, well, we, you, we won't be able to persuade you if you won't listen, on the one hand with the philosopher, and on the other hand, you get a sophist who's actually charging people to, to show them how 
to do precisely that, to manipulate or persuade um, people to do things that they might not otherwise have done. Yeah, and one of the questions that arises from this is um, whether this form of uh, persuasion is just another form of force, right? In other words, whether people are being compelled if you offer them the right incentive or whether they're listening of their own accord. Uh, it's interesting to me that the um, uh, horseback race that Brian mentioned is the thing that finally gets uh, Socrates to agree um, especially Glaucon to agree, because he's the one who actually gives the agreement uh, that they should stay. So it's the kind of solution to the impasse that they come to when confronted with the threat of superior numbers, right? Either prove stronger uh, than the people you're facing or uh, stay here. Okay, so maybe we should, should we bring them into Cephalus's house from that point in the story, Jeff, you mentioned. Um, they end up at this wealthy man's house. He's older. He's there with his son, who's named Polymarchus. We want to watch him because he proves to be maybe the most philosophically promising character in the first book, other than Socrates, who, of course, is a philosopher. Something strange then happens. Um, Cephalus is old, and Socrates is kind of insensitive, maybe rude, uh, to Cephalus. He basically asks, he says, sort of says to him, you know, so what's it like Cephalus getting old? <laughs> so, so you're kind of close to dying, tell us about that. <laughs> Which of course is not something most people want to discuss, but Socrates goes right there and that's an important move um, in part, well, for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons is it immediately raises the question of justice. That is, Cephalus has reached a time in his life where he thinks death is probably relatively imminent, which means he expects in some way to be judged on the justness of his life. Did he lead a good life or not? Now, he understands that in terms of being judged by the gods, but anyone might think that as they, they get older, they, they start to reflect on their life, they're going to have that question for themselves, um, anyone who's thoughtful anyway. So that's the question Cephalus, uh, Socrates now poses to Cephalus. Yeah, and I think that it's right that this is a kind of rude question to ask someone, right? Uh, Socrates says, how do things look from where you are on the threshold of old age? And it's not clear which is the threshold. Is it the beginning of old age or is it the end that he's at, right? He's very old, we're told. Um, but oddly enough, Cephalus seems really happy to talk about this, right? He says, uh, you know, it, it would be tough, uh, except I've got a couple things. I've got character, which is very important, and I've got money. And money is very useful because you can make things right with the gods, and also because you don't have to hurt people when you've got money, whereas if you don't have it, you need to hurt people. So it's a kind of ominous turn that the conversation takes at this point, right? Uh, you know, how do you keep from committing injustice? Well, sure, you need character, but you also need money. And you get the sense there's, the one, there's one other aspect that Jeff um, maybe prudently dropped um, that, that <laughs> illuminates um, how we're supposed to hear Cephalus's apparent uh, confidence where he's, where it, it is at this moment in life. And that is that he's, he claims to be very happy that he's no longer moved by his passions. And it's just, thank God, I'm, I'm no longer, I no longer have a sex drive and can't get it up, basically, right? <laughs> Um, and I think that's meant not to be convincing. And, and the fact that that's not convincing, I think, affects the other claims, right? We see that he might be whistling in the dark. Well, it also reassures uh, 
you know, many people that the uh, ideas of sex and money are timeless, and the 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 the, the, the somewhat uh, kind of philosophical fascination with those two points, whether it's you know the Platonic dialogue or whatever is on Hot ninety nine five today, or <laughs> uh, you know every every Marine that's out on a Friday night uh, in Jacksonville, North Carolina, um, we all share these uh, interests. Yeah, and actually, that's um, the, we can even push that philosophically a little bit deeper. Both the interest in money and the, and sex are tied very directly to appetites, which in themselves have no natural limits, right? So there, there's nothing that tells you when you have an well. If you're just focused, say, on making money, having money, or the, or or any sort of physical appetite, any appetite actually, um, they in and of themselves will never tell you you have enough. So then one needs to have some other means of figuring out how much, right? What for? Some way of making the appetite intelligible or bounded. And that does come up next, obviously here with the, with, with the gods that Cephalus is going to die and be judged. Um, but maybe also with a conception of justice that's linked to human nature, which is what, where the dialogue then turns. Right? Socrates sort of um, asks, asks, you know, well, so let's press on this notion that you think you've had a just or good life. What do you actually mean by that? Yeah, and just to say one more thing about this notion of appetites that have no natural limits, uh, as long as you're stuck on that notion, as long as you think that that's the case with the appetites for money and for sex, and as long as you have more than one person in your society that has those unlimited appetites, you have a zero-sum game. Right? And so society then starts to look like it's just another word for lack of society, right? Or peace starts to look like it's just another word for war. And I think part of the subtext in this part of the conversation is, has Cephalus been waging war on his fellow citizens for his life? And is this why he's afraid of the gods? He thinks he's been acting unjustly. He needs to do these sacrifices. The sacrifices is actually very interesting because, of course, that's his view of the gods. But what he's basically saying is, look, I have enough money so I can, I can bribe the gods, even if I didn't behave justly in my life. And it looks like if you need to bribe the gods, maybe you didn't. Um, money will solve this problem, too, right? because the gods are basically unjust such that they're susceptible to being bribed. Yeah, they, too, have limitless appetites for money, if not for sex. <laughs> <laughs> The, the idea of human nature is something I'd like to, you know, delve in a little bit. We talked, you know, about justice and human nature. And, you know, we're seeing different natures in this, right? We have Socrates who's just going, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And then we have the sophist Thrasymachus who's saying, this is, this is the way it is. And questioning me is ridiculous. And um, I don't even want to be questioned. I just want you to accept this for what it is. So how do we... How can we, you know, extrapolate some concept of human nature with these different uh, characters all presenting different characteristics? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one, so let's turn to what happens next, that, um, which I think follows directly from Jeff's point about, um, about the interaction with the gods and the bribing of the gods. And that is, how are you going to tell a friend from an enemy? So if, Kef, if basically at this point it looks like um, the implicit understanding of Cephalus and the people who see Socrates at the beginning is that they don't have a very clear view 
of what the limits on their appetites ought to be. Then the question comes up, uh, well, are you actually making those distinctions between friend and enemy, just and unjust, within your city-state? Or are you just doing whatever you can get away with and sort of paying people off um, to avoid consequences? So the question comes up explicitly. How are you defining a friend and an enemy? Yeah, so Polemarchus, who claims that he's going to inherit everything from Cephalus and therefore also inherits the argument, uh, the conversation with Socrates, uh, is the one who suggests that justice is helping friends and harming enemies. And it looks like he does uh, initially start with this view uh, that a friend is somebody who's uh, part of your city or part of your political group, and an enemy is everybody else. And so it's uh, interesting, especially from the perspective of just war theory, just to see how um, total and uncompromising Polemarchus's initial position is, right? That everybody who's on my side is somebody who I'm going to treat well, and everybody who's not on my side is somebody I'm going to treat badly. And I suppose that bad treatment really doesn't have any um, clear limits to it, right? Any amount and kind of harm is permissible when you're encountering an enemy. And Socrates' response to this claim is to raise this question, well, how do you know which people really are your friends and really are your enemies? Because people can seem to be friends and not be friends, or they can seem to be enemies and not be enemies. Yeah, at that point, I think there's um, a point in the dialogue that says one of the things that are maybe most urgent and important um, for us as, as learners, um, Socrates puts it this way, are your friends good because they're your own? Or are they your friends because they're good? So that might seem to be a confusing formulation, but what's implicit there is that by nature, the human being is very inclined to um, assume that whatever is associated with you, whatever is your own is good, um, without evaluating it. And Socrates, by asking the question this way, indicates, no, there is a more um, objective standard of the good against which you ought to measure your own, right? including your friends. And if they don't measure up or if they're bad, then they ought not to be your friends, right? So it's quite radical that way that um, your own is not good enough to determine what, um, it's, it's, it's just a prejudice basically in favor of love of your own. And one could deepen the statement and say it this way, if you really love yourself or your own, then actually you, again, ought to get beyond this prejudice and evaluate so that you actually do have good things, good people um, in your life, and so that you actually do aim to become a good person as opposed to just assuming that you're already fine. And it's, it's at least possible in principle, uh, given uh, a, you know, a certain political situation that you might discover that uh, some of the people around you who you thought were friends are in fact enemies, and some of the people who you thought were enemies because they belong to a foreign body are in fact friends. So one of the consequences of this attempt to get beyond prejudice and to have solid, uh, real grounds for identifying friends and enemies is it could at least um, undermine political distinctions. Yeah, I mean, uh, some of the, as you guys are talking, it reminds me a lot about several of the kind of aphorisms that shaped the Iraq war. Um, and, you know, General Mattis, who just got nominated for Secretary of Defense, you know, two of his sayings were, you know, the, the Marine Corps, no better friend, no worse enemy. 
right? And it was, you know, that divergence there in identifying, you know, the, the people that are our friends we will be useful to, which is part of Paula Marcus's argument, uh, and our enemies, we will, it's not a good day if you run into us. But another part of that, another aphorism that, you know, he uh, was very fond of and that I think shaped the Iraq war and Afghanistan as well was, um, if a guy needs a shooting, shoot him. And if he doesn't, protect him. And so you have that, you know, philosophical dichotomy that we're examining, you know, 2,500 years before um, that's that's still relevant and also still hard to identify. You know, the, the number of conversations I've had about those two aphorisms uh, are, are many um, because it's, it's hard to define, right? And I don't know even in this reading if we get a clear understanding of that, you know, what is a friend, what is an enemy? Yeah, I know. It's interesting, uh, uh, again, in the light of just war theory, because we start out with this very um, extreme position of Polamarcus's that there's no limit to the uh, uh, sorts of harm that you can do to somebody if they're an enemy. And that initially means anybody, I guess, who's not part of your political organization. But we now clearly don't believe that, right? We have constraints both on what counts as the just grounds for going to war and what counts as just conduct in war. In other words, it, uh, we acknowledge that some of the uh, people on the opposing side, certainly civilians and maybe even combatants in certain c circumstances, uh, ought to be treated like friends. Um, now, Socrates uh, pushes Polemarchus so that he jumps over all the intermediate positions and ends up with the opposite extreme, which is uh, you shouldn't harm anyone. And he does it just by asking whether harming means making somebody worse. And why would you ever want to make anybody worse, right? On what grounds would you want to do something like that? So one of the interesting things for me, and I think from the military perspective for this part of book one, is how we get the extreme positions uh, laid out, but the intermediate positions get passed over very quickly. And we ourselves are in that intermediate position. Uh, we're forced to wonder whether the position that we're in is coherent or not. You know, there's um, some of the action speaks a bit to that intermediate position. That is, as Jeff mentioned a little while ago, if one were to simply try to evaluate everybody according to an objective standard of what a good human being is, let's just assume you had a pretty clear idea of what that was, um, that would break down political distinctions. Um, because you would have enemies in the city, in your own city, presumably, maybe even in your own family, and, and you would also have friends um, in, for, in politically foreign bodies. Um, but the opening of the dialogue might help with that. That is, that's obviously, that approach is not going to work politically, for hope obvious reasons. Um, but in the beginning, we do see the philosopher actually um, doing what the political power that is the slave who grabs the cloak and is coming from, Polymer, from Cephalus's house, he, he does just agree that, he, that that would be the reasonable course of action under the circumstances. So I think Socrates is well aware of the fact that, um, that he exists within a political order and has to make prudential calculations um, that are going to support the political order, assuming he doesn't just decide that it's simply bad, which of course in the case of Athens, he doesn't. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in the uh, spaces between those prudential calculations or where prudence does not require to submit, Socrates looks like he's open to a variety of um, things that would be considered foreign, right? So he is down in the Piraeus rather than in Athens. In Piraeus, we have a lot of um, 
people from other cities who are living. They're not really citizens in Athens. Acephalus himself is a foreigner. Um, we're looking at a foreign goddess who's being introduced to the city. So, um, and even in the case of Thrasymachus, who is a sophist who treats Socrates very badly, Socrates talks about him as if he were a friend. So it looks like there are all these signs that Socrates is open to finding friends in places where, or in people who you would initially expect to be uh, enemies. The other difference um, between Socrates and at least some of the characters, uh, notably Thrasymachus, is that um, Socrates, I don't want to say he doesn't have passions, but he is cool-headed, right? So he doesn't do what I think the more natural starting point um, in response to the question of friends and enemies is, um, which is Polemarchus's response. You know, I want to hurt my enemies and help my friends. And that might even be within the city. You know, I have, I have my, little, my little group of guys I hang out with and, and we want to do well and, and we will harm other people and other groups of friends. Um, and the, you know, the more harm we do, the more fun that is, might be for us, right? Within uh, certain limits if they're in your city. Um, Socrates is always just evaluating. What's the end game? What are you trying to accomplish? And it's partly through that that he gets to the position of saying, well, why would you want to make your enemy worse? If you know, harming them means making them worse, then you've actually also made your own circumstance worse, let alone theirs, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's, it's calm, eye on the goal, uh, yeah, constantly keeping the end game in mind. Right. And also being willing to follow like wherever the end game goes, right? And that's, I think, a key part of this. And, you know, Jeff mentioned earlier that Socrates gets to a point where it's, you know, says, according to this rationale, it's never just to harm your enemy. And so, you know, facing those kind of uh, contradictions <laughs> to a certain extent of, um, especially in the military, well, I have to harm my enemy, right? I'm supposed to close with and destroy my enemy by fire or maneuver. Like, you can accept that. Um, as your role, right? But you can also, because we're humans, we can pull this off of having two competing ideas in your head at the same time and saying, this might not make any sense, but it also does make sense. And so when you have these kind of two systems uh, of logic, uh, being able to kind of keep both in your head and examine both um, that are seemingly contradictory, and they are, um, but also being able to kind of rationalize both systems fairly thoroughly, uh, you know, it's it's kind of the nature of philosophy, I think, to a certain extent, is to have these kind of uh, conclusions that you accept, but you don't accept at the same time. And I think that that's some of the advantage of looking at something like the Republic, because as we go further in the book, if any of our readers do go further in the book, there's a lot of conclusions <laughs> that you go, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And okay, so now we have to have browns people and silver people and gold people and all this kind of crazy stuff. And it does make sense to a certain extent, but then you look at the whole and you go, maybe this doesn't make any sense. Um, and so you're on that kind of horns of a dilemma in accepting these models and where they lead. Mm-hmm. Maybe this is the place to turn then to uh, one of those conclusions that we both accept and don't accept, which is the uh, kind of concluding um, question that's addressed in book one. And the uh, conclusion is espoused by Thrasymachus, um, not the initial position he takes, which uh, is called uh, justice is the advantage of the stronger, but the final position that he takes, um, which is that the, it's the best thing 
for an individual, the best you can do for yourself is to become a tyrant over a city, right? In other words, to be the only one in a city who wages uh, war on your fellow citizens, who treats them unjustly, while they all act justly by doing what you say, right? So it's a kind of covert war. The other citizens don't realize that they're at war with you, but you realize it, and you take uh, your advantage uh, by taking everything that you want from them as a tyrant. And according to Thrasymachus, this is uh, the best way to live. And uh, I mention this as an example of the sort of opinion that you mentioned, Brian, where we hold it and don't hold it, because Socrates wonders whether there might be people uh, who share that view, right, who think that uh, the life of the tyrant is the best life. And this is a view that he tries to confront in the end of book one. And according to this view, uh, Thrasymachus's view, justice, uh, which he understands as law-abidingness, is um, something only, you only do if you're sort of a dupe, right? That the laws are put there basically to benefit the tyrant, and then everybody else is told, oh, but you'd be a good person if you obey the laws. But it's not actually true, right? It's, it's just a convenient lie told by the tyrant to pad his wallet and his lifestyle. Um, so that's the, the claim that Thrasymachus makes. Um, the way the dialogue opens up is by one of those other subtle, subtle sort of visual things, or I, I always see these things like movies. Um, when, when Socrates presses in on it and basically says, so if that's the case, if that's what justice is, then why are you telling all these young men here um, that that's what justice is? Because as a good tyrant, wouldn't it be more in keeping with your teaching not to tell people that this is how it is, right? This is basically the claim. And Thrasymachus blushes. He realizes that he's been caught in a contradiction. Um, and I think he also realizes more deeply that he hasn't understood his own behavior in trying to teach these young men, that actually he has an attachment to a different kind of justice, such that he's motivated to, to try and prevent the young men from being manipulated by the tyrant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the thing that allows Socrates to catch him in a contradiction is his deep concern on the one hand to know the truth about justice and on the other hand to teach it to other people, right? And so it's precisely this. Um, Thrasymachus has a notion of uh, a perfect art, an art that the possessor of which uh, will never go wrong. Uh, It's notions like this that allow Socrates to uh, lead Thrasymachus into a self-contradiction. And once he realizes that you can't both praise tyranny and care deeply about uh, the truth and about teaching it to others because you think it'll be good for them, uh, that Thrasymachus realizes that, yeah, he hasn't examined his own life. He doesn't actually know what the best way of life is. So I think we're, uh, I think that's probably a good point to wrap up. Um, so thank you guys for uh, doing another episode here of Combat and Classics. Uh, we'll put some really cool outro music right here um, <laughs> at some point. Um, I wonder, or we can start singing. Uh, I wonder if you guys, you know, I mentioned the, you know, the the normal uh, military structure is, you know, here's the three things you need to learn from the Republic. And, you know, at the end you go, here's the three things you should have learned. I'm wondering if we can take a flip side of that. 
and if each of us could pose an additional questions because there's three of us and so we have three questions so you know my question is what are what are three questions people can um potentially dig into uh regarding the republic it can be book one or the whole thing if um, we can tie it into the whole thing so if one of you wants to give that a shot yeah i've got one uh how do I know whether my society is at war with itself or at peace with itself? What do I look to to know that? Jeff, you stole my question. Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm going to rephrase it and it'll sound like it's different. <laughs> um, so I would ask, once, once you have made the distinction that, that Thrasymachus makes as a result of Socrates pushing him, that is, once you've realized that your own actions are motivated by some conception of justice that isn't reducible to law-abidingness, which you may or may not think is, is just prudential or that it's all a sham, what is that standard going to be? What are you such that we, we all seem to have um, lines that we draw in the sand where we say that's not acceptable or that's unjust? How are we doing that? So, Lise, you stole my question. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was going to be different from Jeff's. But if what you just asked is the same as Jeff's, then I think I'm repeating it too, which is how do you measure harm Yeah. in terms of justice? Like how do you measure harm that you're doing to your friends or to your enemies? Like how do you qualify or quantify that? Um, both for the citizenry in your city and for your enemies, how do you measure harm? Yeah. Um, so, you know, three questions that might be the same, <laughs> it might be different. <laughs> Uh, that our listeners can uh, juggle with and wrestle with if they uh, want to try book one or if they want to try the whole thing. And it's the whole thing is a bear. So if you do, if you do, do end up reading the whole thing and I'll, I'll put a bonus question in here, which is what if, what if Glaucon's footstool question wasn't in there? I have a theory about Glaucon's footstool and like economic illiteracy that <laughs> leads us down this path of all these different categories of people and yada, yada, yada. But it's not really what we were talking about today. But I'll just drop that and mic drop out. Um, great. What, uh, what did I miss, guys? Anything else we wanted to cover in this episode? No, I think this is good. I think okay. we, we covered all of it thoroughly. <laughs> great. Nothing more to learn here. Move on. Nothing more to learn. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Jeff and Lise, very much. Uh, thank you, Brian. Thanks, Participating. Brian. Combat and Classics podcast. CombatandClassics.org. You can check us out on Facebook as well. Combat and Classics. Uh, thanks for tuning in.